got some uh, some really good questions. Um, we had about six of them, and I kind of lumped a few of them together because I feel like they kind of go together a little bit. Um, so we've got a few, and I know there's probably going to be some questions that come off of this because there always is. So uh, we'll we'll tackle those as they come. So the first one that we got here is that did Abraham's bosom exist for people like Abel? So that was one question that we had on there. So if you guys know the whole deal with Abraham's bosom, everyone clear on that one? Yeah. Kind of, sort of. All right, well, let's make sure that we're clear on that. Go to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. So Luke is in your Bible. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in your Bible. So, Dr. Luke, yes. Chapter 16. Um, what now? Dr. Earl. Earl? Okay. <laughs> I always think of Dr. Steve Brule. Do you guys know Dr. Steve Brule? Nope. I know Dr. Steven Strange. Well, yeah, that's different. Uh -huh. but it's been a few years. It has. I think the ones that did know have graduated. I need to introduce you guys to Dr. Steve Brule. It's pretty much life-altering. I mean, it's amazing. In a good way? Or in, in a good way. I mean, like, when you're done, you're going to be like, how did this benefit my life? But you just give it some time. Okay. And then we'll actually give it some Because it's for your health. It's for your health. All right. We'll talk about that later. Okay. So, in, in John chapter... in John. Sorry, not John. I'm in John, which I'm not supposed to be. I'm supposed to be in, in the book of Luke. So, that tells you how way off I am. Great start to the evening. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a difference. Okay, so in Luke 16, so there is a passage, it starts in verse 19. Uh, a lot of people have, um, in some theological circles, will say that this is actually a parable, so this, these events did not occur, uh, but that's not the case. This is an event that actually did take place. Jesus was speaking about it as if it was a parable, but he didn't use the term parable. When Jesus is speaking about parables, he makes it very, very clear. He'll say, this is a parable, or he spake unto them in parables, saying, and then it will go on. In this passage, it doesn't say that at all. So this is an account that actually took place, and it uses at least one person that we know of already, and that is Lazarus. So in verse 19, there's a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was, at, which, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So Jesus is speaking in this, and so here you have a description between the rich man and Lazarus and Abraham, and a dialogue that takes place that gives you a description of this place 
that is referred to as paradise in the Bible a little bit. But we also see in hell, verse 23, he lift up his eyes and being in torments and he sees Abraham's bosom. So you have almost three different parts here. You have hell, you have Abraham's bosom, and you have this gulf. And so the best way that we can do it is by doing a masterpiece drawing, which I am so incredible at. That was also a joke. Um, but here you have, and, we're, and this is not to scale, by the way. I didn't practice it, so my apologies ahead of time. So here you have the earth, okay? And in the center of the earth, you have this area, and you have the, um, you have the one side here, and then you have a great gulf that's fixed, and then you have the other side over here, okay? And so this would be hell. This would be Abraham's bosom, Ab. And then this would be the gulf, okay? So this story takes place, and you have the rich man on the hell side. And then you have Abraham's bosom, and who knows what they're doing over here. But this is the way this is described here. Now, we know that this is in the heart of the earth because when Jesus, when he died... Uh, it says that three days and three nights he was going to be in the heart of the earth. Um, and it says that in, I have that, I thought I had that reference in here. Mm, I wrote it somewhere. Might be in another place. Oh, let's see here. Luke. Luke 16. So it's Matthew 27, 52. Um, and that's where, no, that's actually another passage altogether. Anyway, I'll find that passage later. So where Jesus said that he's going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so here in the heart of the earth, you have this place, and then you have the description of the rich man over on this side. You've got Lazarus on this side with Abraham, and you have this great gulf that's fixed in between them. And so this describes what is in the center of the earth. And so here you have, it's called Abraham's bosom. Now, the question was, okay, it's called Abraham's bosom, so what about people that are before Abraham? And so the assumption is, is that this did not exist until Abraham, which is not necessarily the case. So when you really think about it, in Matthew 25, 41, anyone know that verse? Matthew 25, 41? It's a really good verse to have in mind, especially when you're witnessing to somebody. Anybody? 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 Nope? Nope? Okay, turn there. Matthew. Hold your spot here and go to Matthew chapter 25 and take a look at verse 41. Matthew 25, 41. This is a scripture passage you definitely want in your, in your heart and mind. Okay, someone read it for me. 2541. Go ahead, Ethan. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so this is a description of hell, and he calls it everlasting fire, prepared for who? Okay, people? No, it does not say for people. It says for the devil and his angels. So when would have God created hell? Yes, after Lucifer fell. Because beforehand, you, there's no even mention of it whatsoever. But when God recreated the heaven and the earth after Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, through the end of that chapter, when he's recreating everything, he would have created hell. Now, what's interesting about this is that you have, um, you have this whole place here, and there's actually a passage. Um, I remember writing all this stuff down, and I feel like I have it like on my notes somewhere, and I cannot find it anywhere. And it's probably because it's, it's wrapped up in the next one. And I know it's in Deuteronomy. Where is it at? This is driving me nuts. Okay, there it is. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Take a look at this. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. God makes a statement in this verse that's very, very interesting. Deuteronomy 32. And take a look at verse... Let's see here. 
Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, verse 30, chapter 32, verse 1. Deuteronomy, that's what I said. What? What, Deuteronomy? What? You don't get it? I'm mispronouncing Deuteronomy, and I'm saying, dude, you're on to me. Deuteronomy, whatever. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, it's all right, it's all right, okay. We're all in this together. We'll make it. Okay, Deuteronomy 32. So he's talking about the nation of Israel and the fact that they have forgotten God and they've, they've now in a place where they are, are sinning against God. And now God has to, has to judge that sin. And so he says in verse 18, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful for thou uh, for, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And then he starts going and starts talking about it. Take a look at verse 22. For a fire, this is God speaking, for a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. So he's talking here about the nation of Israel for sure. But when you think about where sin took place and where sin originated, it was with Lucifer. And so when you talk about God's anger being kindled and it creating this fire that actually then would burn down to the lowest hell and set on fire the foundations of the mountains, what do you think that is? That's hell. That's the center of the earth. The foundations of the mountains is the center of the earth. So here it kind of talks about the time in which God created hell, if you want to look at it from a doctrinal perspective. He's using this as a, as a way to emphasize his, him having to judge sin in general. But this passage tells you that this is where the whole idea of hell even came from. Once sin existed, now he has to deal with it. And Matthew 25, 41 says that hell, the everlasting fires of hell, were created for the devil and his angels. It was never meant for human beings whatsoever. It is the place that people go when they choose to remain in their sin and to not be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ or by the righteousness of God in the Old Testament uh, or in the tribulation for that matter. But when it comes to the purpose of hell, it was always for the devil and his angels. And so now you have this dialogue that takes place between these two guys. You got the rich man and you got Lazarus. And it is so bad here, if you go back to Luke 16, it is so bad here that he does not want anyone to go there. So now he's a believer. Beforehand, he was not a believer, but now his life is over, and now he is a believer, but now it's too late. And now he's saying, please send someone back from the dead to tell my family, because I don't want them to come into this place. Now, here's the reality behind it. What happened to Lazarus? He was raised. Yeah, after he died, then he? he was raised. Yes, he came back from the dead. So even this guy's request came true, by the way. And it is possible that Lazarus could have gone back to the rich man's family and said, hey, I got a message to you from you know, your loved one that passed on. Yeah. But then what did Abraham say? He said, no. Look at it in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What is that? What is the written record of Moses and the prophets? The Scripture, the Bible, what we know as the Old Testament. So if they're not willing to hear the written record of God's words, they're not going to hear someone even though they rose from the dead. Which, by the way, we talked about this, I think it was, what, last week when we talked about it? Other people also rose from the dead after Jesus resurrected, right, and went into the city and talked unto many. So not only did Lazarus do it before Jesus died and was raised, but then after Jesus died and was raised again from the dead, others went into the city and talked to people. 
And so the reality is, is that we would think in our human reasoning that uh, the, the verbal testimony of someone who has died and come back from the dead is more valid than the written word of God. But what did Abraham say? No. This is more powerful. If they're not willing to hear what God has actually written, they will not hear anyone else. They might for a moment, but it's not going to last because they don't have a believing heart. So it doesn't matter what the source is if they don't have a believing heart. But if they're not willing to hear the written word of God, then it's not going to do any good. It's not going to do any good. So going back to this question, did Abraham's bosom exist for people like Abel? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's called Abraham's bosom for a reason. If you were to study out Romans chapter 4, you find out that Abraham, even here, uh, the rich man calls Abraham father. So in Romans chapter 4, it talks about how Abraham is the father of faith. He is one that God uses throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as the person that has the faith to be right with God. But that faith did not originate with Abraham. Technically, it goes all the way back to Adam. But Abraham is the type that God uses, and that's why everyone calls him Father Abraham, which is why we also sing that song at BBS. Super annoying, but great song. Father Abraham. And it just gets stuck in your head, and it never ends. And so... It's called Abraham's bosom because of who Abraham was. Abraham was one of the first guys in Scripture to display great, great faith, where he went out and he believed God when there was no evidence to believe God whatsoever. He just went and did it because God told him to do it. And so he became the father of faith, not only to the Jewish people uh, through which the Jewish line would come, but also unto us Gentiles who end up getting saved. And that's why Romans 4 uses Abraham in that capacity, that he's the father of us all in that sense. So that's why it's called Abraham's bosom. Um, but most certainly, there's no doubt in my mind that, that Adam was there, uh, that Abel was there. Um, they're not any longer, by the way, but they, they were there, that David was there, that Solomon was there, um, Jonathan was there, uh, Ruth, Boaz. I mean, all the people in the Old Testament that died, the place where they went was to this place. And they went to Abraham's bosom until Christ died and was resurrected from the dead. And then he escorted captivity captive and he put them, uh, he escorted them up to the third heaven. So, yes, it did exist. Um, the only thing that's kind of cool that I like to mention about this is go to uh, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you this. There's a lot of other passages that we could take a look at, but this one's a good one to kind of launch off from. Um, but Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is speaking. And he says, so John's writing in verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, when he saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and have the keys of hell and of death. Now, if you study out the book of Job, you find out when it's talking about the Leviathan in Job 41, uh, that the devil, also called the Leviathan, uh, was in charge of this place called hell and of death. And so any person that would die, um, it was technically his, and they were trapped in this place. 
And so when Jesus descended into the heart of the earth, what he did when he descended is that he took the keys of hell and of death. So there are, um, at this point in time from my studies, I've only been able to find this in two places, but there are bars and doors that are over this whole compartment that we call hell, the center of the earth. And there's also uh, bars and doors over the bottomless pit as well, because that's going to be unlocked during the tribulation. And there's going to be things that come out of the bottomless pit. This is also where the devil is going to be kept for a thousand years and he's going to be chained and locked in this place. So the keys of hell and of death or, or control all of this. So when Jesus died and he descended, there's some people that believe that when Jesus died, he actually went to hell. He did not. He did not go to hell. When he paid the price for our sins, he paid for it in full, but he's still God. He did not suffer the torments of hell for us. Somebody's excited. I've been talking about the Bible. All right. But he went over to this place over here. But while he was over in this place, he took the keys of hell and of death. He did not have it at this point in time. This is also why, um, if you keep in mind, the reason why this is this was a point of contention, turn over just a few pages to your left to the book of Jude and take a look at this one. In verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. It's a very interesting verse. It just kind of stands out a little bit. So that means that there was a point in time back in the Old Testament where Moses died. Everyone remember when Moses died? Why did he die? Anyone remember? Why did Moses have to die? The second time. Yes. So God was setting up a type, and that type was that the rock is Christ. You can see this out in 1 Corinthians, where that rock was Christ. He struck it once, and living water came out, and it actually gave life into the whole nation of Israel. So he was so frustrated with the nation of Israel from their murmuring and complaining that he took the rod, and God told him, don't strike the rock, just speak to the rock, and it will give you living water which is a great, great picture of Jesus Christ. Christ only died one time. He didn't have to die over and over and over and over again. He died once. And if you want to go back and get living water again, all you need to do is speak to Him and He'll give it to you. I love that picture. So Christ only had to die once. And so He took that staff and He was so mad at the nation of Israel that He struck the rock again. Water came out. But God said, because you did this, you messed up my picture. You messed up my type. I'm not allowing you to go into the promised land. So God allowed Him to go to the top of the mountain, Mount Pisgah, and He allowed Him to see the promised land and then there he died. And it said that he was in good old age. He had strength. He, he did not have any, any sort of deterioration in his body whatsoever. He was super strong and he was fit and he was ready to go. But God said, you're going to die. And you're going to die because you made this mistake. Now, when Moses died, where would he have gone? Abs. Yes, he would go into the ab department. Sorry. <laughs> it's one of those days. Okay, so he would have gone to Abraham's bosom. Okay, so here's the deal. The devil has the keys of hell and death at this point in time with Moses. So the devil is now contending with Michael saying, that body is mine because he owns the keys of hell and of death. With death controls your body, correct? Okay, so Michael's contending because Moses... That body belongs to God, and God's actually going to resurrect that body because who's coming back during the tribulation? Moses and Elijah. And Elijah was taken up in a bodily form, and he's coming back in his actual body. Well, Moses has his body too, and he's actually going to die during the tribulation as well. And his body's going to be displayed for three days in the streets because the Antichrist is going to kill him. So Moses has to have his body. So God, res he kills Moses, but then he resurrects Moses and then raptures him out. 
And here, the devil's saying, nah, you, know, you can't do that. I have the keys of hell and of death. That's mine. That body's mine. And Michael's saying, hey, listen, I have every right to fight with you because you're wrong and you're in sin and you're the devil, but I'm not. I'm going to say the Lord rebuke thee. God told me to come down and get this body, so that's what I'm going to do. And if you have any issues, you deal with him. <laughs> so that's kind of a little, little niche here in Jude that a lot of people just kind of pass over. That the devil had every right to say, that body is mine. You have no business taking Moses' body. There's no business. He should not be resurrected from the dead. That body's mine. So that's because he had the keys of hell and of death. So when Jesus came down and he took the keys of hell and of death, now he controls all that. And that's why he's called the first fruits when it comes to the resurrection. He's the first one to truly rise from the dead in a glorified body. And then we follow his example. Because now since he has the keys of hell and of death, he controls it all. And that's why death has no sting, the grave has no victory any longer, because Jesus now has those keys. So it's just a neat little thing in Scripture that I, I find super fascinating. Okay, so there's that. That's Abraham's bosom. So today, Abraham's bosom is now empty. The Old Testament saints that were here when Jesus Christ came and took those keys, he opened up that gate and he escorted all the Old Testament saints up to the third heaven in the presence of God and then he closed those bars and doors again and now hell still exists and whoever dies apart from God's righteousness goes in hell and they are there until their final judgment. Okay? Good. Any questions off that one? All right. All right. Okay. So there's that one. All right. Now let's talk about ghosts, shall we? Because that's interesting. It's muy interesante. Ghosts, are they real? And can a place be haunted? All right, so this one's fascinating. All right, so there's three places in the Bible where the word haunt is used. Let's go to the first one. 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. All right, 1 Samuel 23. And the context here is that Saul is pursuing David. He wants to kill him. He wants to kill him dead. And here in verse 22, he says, Go, Saul says this, I pray you, prepare yet and know and see his place where his haunt is and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. And see, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hideth himself. Same thing with haunts, the same sort of thing. And come ye again to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall come to pass, if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And he kind of continues on from there. So this whole idea of haunt, it means literally that it's a place that you frequent, uh, to resort to much or often, or to be much about or to visit customarily. So if we were to say, um, where do you haunt? You can say your house, school, work. It'd be kind of weird, but yeah, I haunt that place. Like, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting way to talk about it. But that's the old English. We don't use this term anymore, but that's literally what it means here. And so um, you have that's the, that's the first place that it means. So when we use the term haunted or haunted or haunt or haunted, um, anything like that, it's often associated with ghosts and things that are more supernatural, but that's not the origination of the word, just so that way you know that. Kind of a little nugget. There is a place that's interesting. You're already in first Samuel. Go over to chapter 28. Um, there are some people that believe, you know, is there such thing as ghosts? Uh, and so there is an interesting passage here and another one that we'll take a look at. But in 1 Samuel 28, it's kind of a weird passage. Every time I read it, it's always been a big question mark for me. But in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, 
Samuel has died. Saul no longer has God's favor, and God is not talking to Saul any longer. And he wants to get answers, and he wants to get answers from Samuel, but Samuel is now dead. And so here you have a very strange circumstance. Verse 3, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. So people that dealt with these devils, uh, and really the supernatural realm, uh, more on the evil side, of course. Verse 4, And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunim, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit. Now this is someone who deals with devils, like someone who actually converses with devils. This is a real thing. Uh, in today's culture, it would be like witch doctors or uh, people that deal with um, any sort of black magic. or uh, And it's really creepy. If you start really looking into it, it's pretty, pretty creepy. But it is a legit thing that people can actually resort with devils. And so he wants a woman that has a familiar spirit. Now if you notice though, in verse Verse 3, he had put away all those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. So now he's even going against his own commandment. He knows that it's right in the eyes of God to put those people away from the land, but now he's not hearing from anybody, and so he's like, find me a woman who deals with familiar spirits, or with a familiar spirit. And then he says, why? That I may go to her and inquire of her. I'm not hearing from God, so I want to go and hear from these evil spirits. And then his servant said to him, behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. That's interesting. Verse 8, And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, now, she doesn't know it's him because he disguised himself. How he hath cut off those that have some familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swear to her by the Lord. This guy is a walking hypocrite. It's unbelievable. Saying, as the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, whom shall I bring up unto thee? Notice she says bring up. It goes back to this here. Because he's here bringing them up. Okay? Interesting. Okay. So whom shall I bring up? And uh, verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. So now everything is made clear. I don't think she's necessarily freaking out that it's Samuel, because she has this ability to bring things up. But she's never seen it like this. Because normally what happens in this type of scenario is that devils uh, really counterfeit this whole thing. And the things that actually come up aren't actually the people. That's, if you really study it out and you really look into it in detail, when devils conjure up spirits of other people, it's other devils that are having the persona of that individual. And so here, the legit spirit actually comes up and it freaks her out. And now she knows, wait a minute, you're Saul, this is Samuel, why did you do this? It's, it's an interesting scenario. Verse 13, And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, 
For what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. That's an interesting phrase, which we don't have time to go into. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? So this is actually Samuel here talking to him. Hey, listen, I was in Abraham's bosom just chilling. Why did you call me up? Why did you do this? And then he says, I'm sore distressed because the Philistines, they make war. He doesn't know what to do. And then verse 16, Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee and has become thine enemy? So God allows Samuel to come up to rebuke Saul again. So this is a very unique scenario. This is not something that happens every day. But God allowed this woman who divines with spirits to bring up the spirit of, of Samuel so that way Samuel could actually speak because God just basically stopped talking to Saul. So this is the only place in the Bible that I can think of that a lot of people have kind of take something like this and they've kind of attributed it over to ghosts and haunted places and things like this. But again, you're dealing with spirits. So do I believe that ghosts actually exist? Um, I think that they're spirits. I think they're evil spirits. Um, anytime you see an evil spirit show up in the scriptures, um, it, it's, the spirit is invisible, but at times they can have an appearance. I've heard stories, and there's people in our church that have dealt with uh, uh, other drugs and other things like that too, that while they have been uh, high or under the influence, they have actually seen evil spirits. I think that's totally legit um, because I think in dealing with a lot of the drug um, abuse and things like that, it opens up your mind to different realms that you normally are not normally aware of. But we know the devils are real because we see people that have been possessed by devils and even can have a change in their personality or even have a particular ailment because of a devil that's inside of their body. So those things do exist. Now within our American culture, we don't see them as much, but I do think that they do exist just as they did back in the, in the New Testament with Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I just think the devil is very good at what he does. And uh, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The devil is very good at what he does. Everything that he does is to try to keep people blind. Because he is subtle and he is very deceitful. Verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye, ye might well bear with him. And then take a look at verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And, verse 14, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So the devil is so good at what he does that he actually has people that are called Christians that preach Jesus, but it's another Jesus, that tell people they need to receive a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit, it's another spirit. And he has a gospel, good news, but it's another gospel, it's not a gospel that's going to save. And he has deceitful workers that look like apostles of Christ, and he himself transforms an angel of light, and his ministers are ministers of righteousness. So this tells you that the devil is actually working, not necessarily in these satanic realms, although he is, and devils do do that. I believe that the devil is, is hardcore into churches that preach the Bible and have pastors that look pretty good. 
I think that is where he spends all of his time and energy. Because if he can craft a lie that is so close to the truth that even people that believe the truth can be deceived, well, then he's, he wins. This is why I think the Antichrist, frankly, is going to mo- look more like Jesus Christ than he would the devil. I really do believe that. I think that when you study it out and you find out, uh, the term Antichrist does not mean the opposite of Christ, although he is. The term means is that he looks just like Christ. He's the antitype. He looks just like him, but he's just off enough that he could deceive almost anyone, anyone into believing him. And the only way that you can discern the difference in between what is truth and what is error is the scriptures. That's it. The Bible. That's it. Not your experiences, not your emotions, not anything else other than the written word of God. And this goes back to what Abraham told the rich man in hell. If they're not willing to believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe anyone, even though they rose from the dead and they went and talked to that person. It's about the written word of God, which is why we're big on the Bible in our church. Because if you don't know the scriptures, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, and if you can't go to a verse or verses to prove what you believe, then you will be deceived. It's just a matter of time. And that's the only way, which is why we want to teach you guys what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what my opinion is, is what does the scriptures say? That is the most important thing that I could teach you for as many years as I've got you in here. Okay, so that deals with ghosts and are they real? I think that when it comes to ghosts, um, the term ghost, by the way, is not in the scriptures. Uh, the only place that does show up, and this is interesting, and I'll just mention this to you, and you can write it down, you can look it up later, but in Matthew 14, 26, and the parallel account in Mark, so it's Matthew 14, verse 26, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 49, this is the part of Scripture where Jesus is walking on the water, and the disciples freak out. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's a spirit. That's what your King James Bible says. But if you look it up in any other version of the Bible, guess what it says? ghosts. So in other translations of the Bible that began, by the way, with uh, the Revised Standard Version, which is one of the first mainstream corrupt texts that came out after the King James, they were the first ones to change it into ghosts. And that actually came from two guys, Westcott and Hort, that frankly, they dealt with familiar spirits and they actually talked with devils. And so they changed it into being ghosts, by the way. That's an interesting one. There's only other two other translations that I have found that use something different, and that would be... Um, the Young's Living Translation and the Darby Translation uses the word apparition. Uh, but outside of that, every other translation of the Bible uses the word ghost in this passage. But your King James Bible says it's a spirit. And then Jesus speaks up and says, hey guys, it's just me. So, well, I mean, more or less. He says, hey guys, chill, it's just me. Okay. All right. So I think when it comes to ghosts, that they're either devils or they're fallen angels that have transformed themselves into something with the appearance of godliness. Um, and that they're really good at counterfeiting. Um, especially people that believe that they see angels that have wings and stuff. Like, angels don't have wings. Like, every time you see an angel in the Bible, they don't have wings. Angels in the outfield, they did. Yeah, and that's of the devil. <laughs> those are devils that possess those people, by the way. Tony Danza, like I know, I know. Good old 90s, the satanic 90s. They have All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go home and watch Angels in the Outfield and you'll understand. Okay. There you go. Okay, so the last one, we really don't have time because I have like five minutes left. And it's the differing views of the rapture and how to defend the pre-trib rapture is the biblical view. So that would like take the entire class time. So yeah, we'll, we'll save that one. What's that? 
Yeah, we could do that next week. Yeah, so we can talk about that one. So we, we can push that off until next week. That's an interesting one because there's several different views. So based off of that, any questions off of that that I can answer in maybe like five minutes? Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm in biology right now. Yeah. And we're, okay, this might be more details than I intended. It's okay. I'll let you know. Evolution and stuff, and um, they always go back to, the, like, hip, like, whales have hip bones or something. Like, that is, like, their main point for that. Yeah. And, like, I, <laughs> sorry, I don't even know what to say. Like, what I'm, I, I don't know why they have hip bones. I don't know, like, is there any... Like, they just show me weird stuff, like embryos that look the same, so they have yeah. a common ancestor. Yeah. Just like, weird stuff like that. I'm like, I don't even know how to combat that. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that I do when it comes to that is that you can always just go back and say, yeah, but where's the evidence that it actually, that the microevolution evidence, where is it? Like, it, where does it, it doesn't exist. So everything that they're throwing out are, is just pure theory. It's just pure theory. The interesting thing about whales, there is something very interesting about whales, though, because if you go back to Genesis 1, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Um, yeah, we're talking about whales. Whales. Are you asking how to spell whale? No. It's been a very long day. I'll tell you spell it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Okay. All right. Genesis chapter 1. All right. Take a look at verse 20. Verse 20. So uh, it's the end of the fourth day, now the beginning of the fifth day. Which is the number of death, by the way, which is interesting. Okay, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let fowl multiply upon the earth in the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Now, I think I, there's an interesting connection, I think, between the number five being the number of death and God creating aquatic animals that are more reptilian and the fowls of the air, which are a picture of devils. But that's just beside the point. What I really wanted to show you here is verse 21. And God created great whales. It's very interesting that God, out of all the things he created, he did not say God created fish, he created this. He called out very specifically whales. There's something very unique about whales that God called out for whatever reason. Now, the only other place that you show up in the Bible, the, the whales, is uh, in Job 7, verse 12, it talks about the whale. Ezekiel 32, verse 2, talks about oh, the whale. But then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, this is the verse I was trying to find originally. It says, For as Jonas, or Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the whale's belly and the whale itself was uniquely created, I think, for two purposes. One of them being for the time of Jonah. And I think the other being a parallel to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the heart of the earth actually being like the whale's belly. Um, and here he says he created great whales. So it's interesting that God would call this out very uniquely and how he would then connect that with Jonah and then connect that with Jesus later on down the road. Now there's more that we can go into with that, but that's just a really interesting side note. So there's something very unique about whales. And it's not coincidence that I think scientists try to capitalize on that um, and try to use that for their evolutionary theory because God called them out very unique and very special on purpose 
because there's nothing really like them on the face of the earth. They're fascinating creatures. Yes? How about Devil. Oh my God. <laughs> I can always count on Andy to throw like, hey, we're going this way, hey, squirrel, and just go this completely different direction. Yeah, I know you are. Sam. Is there any significance to why the Holy Spirit is also called the Holy Ghost? Significance to it? No, I don't think so. Yeah, but they're synonymous with the same person. So I don't know how God would. I mean, He uses them differently for different. I mean, He might use them differently, but I don't think so. I've never seen it before. I've never seen that there's a difference between them. Um, other than you have spirit and spirits, and you have like you know the spirit capital S, and then the Holy Ghost, and how that's different from ghosts or spirits, but. Possibly. I've never looked into it. Yeah, I've never looked into it. All right, what other questions we got? We got a minute to spare. What is. You got one? Brandon. Do you really think it like looks like that? Like is sheer like that? Because everything else is like circular because of gravity. Like, Correct. Good point. So no, I don't. Um, <laughs> so if if I were to look at this, I mean, I drew it this way just because we had I'm looking for the markers that are here. Um, but I would say honestly, the best way to look at it would be something like. Um, I know, right? I know. Okay, I think it would be something like this, okay? So the gulf, you're looking top down, by the way, okay? I think the gulf would be something like this. And whether or not there was actually, you know, some sort of a gap of some kind, I don't know if it would look like this, you know what I mean? Whatever. Okay. But, like, let's say this part, all in the middle, this is the great gulf that's fixed, okay? And then this would be hell, and this would be Abraham's bosom. All right. And so looking at it from top down, there is a gulf that's fixed because you can't pass from one side to the other. So there has to be a, a, a clear cut you know, division between these two. But the reason why this is also called the bottomless pit is because it literally, it literally would be like a circle. Because once you're put in the bottomless pit, because of gravity, I mean, you would constantly be falling no matter what direction you're going. So people would just be hovering and so it would, be, it would truly be bottomless So, um, because of the way that the earth rotates. I can, I can answer this, actually, with a movie. Bill <laughs> <laughs> and Ted's bogus journey where they're falling in the bottomless pit forever. Sure. There you go. So, or you can go. You can go Alice in Wonderland. There you go. So I think I think the other lesson that we've learned from tonight is that Andy's theological training is limited by movies. <laughs> Whatever. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. There you go. There you go. There you go. That's one way to rationale it. There you go. There you go. So that would be almost like the way that it's like as far as the bottomless pit goes. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. But again, all we know is that there's one side and there's another, and that there's a gulf, and there's the bottomless pit because of the way that the earth rotates. Good? All right. Okay. Any other questions? Going once. Going twice. Sold. Sold to no one. Okay. All right, so next week then we're going to talk about the rapture, and we're going to talk about uh, the pre-tribulation rapture versus the mid-trib... 
rapture versus the post-trib rapture and why certain people believe one versus the other and yada, yada, yada. So it should be fun. All right, so let's pray. God, thank you for your word and that it truly does give us answers for everything uh, to deal with life and how to, how to live godly. And I pray that we would fall in love with your word. Um, it is truly one of the most amazing books, the most amazing book I've ever read in my entire life. It doesn't matter how many times I read it, how many times I study it, there's always something new there's always something exciting. There's always something super interesting uh, that um, just opens up my, my understanding and makes me really stand in awe of you. Um, there are no holes in your word. Everything agrees together. There are no contradictions. It truly is a wonder to behold, and I pray that we would uh, really treasure it, uh, that we would want to get to know it more and more. Because um, truly the deep things of God really show your character, uh, your heart, how amazing you are. Um, and I pray that it would just deepen our love for you. And in the process, as we get to know your heart, that we would care for the people around us more. You are so gracious to us, God. Uh, you're so forgiving and so kind and so compassionate and tender. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, just help us to be better equipped for anything that comes our way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.